Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Ask people in the know as to who the most influential American progressive rabbi has been over the past decade and who the most prominent rabbinic voice has been since the October 7th attacks rocked the Jewish world, Rabbi Sharon Brous would probably be the unanimous choice. Trained in the conservative movement, Rabbi Brous pioneered post-denominational Judaism in 2004, founding the Ikar Congregation in Los Angeles, which she calls a spiritual community dedicated to reanimating Jewish life through soulful, inventive religious practice and a deep commitment to social justice, a model which has been replicated across the country. Since then, her star hasn't stopped rising. She has been on countless lists of the country's leading rabbis and most influential Jews. She's on the board and advisory council of progressive Jewish organizations. She blessed President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden in 2013 and blessed the president and vice president at the inaugural national prayer service again for President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris at that national inaugural prayer service. Most recently, she lit the Hanukkah candles at the vice president's Hanukkah party. And she was even on the cover of Time magazine. And now she's on Haaretz Weekly. Welcome, Sharon Brous. Thank you, Allison. So good to be with you. I hope it's okay to call you Sharon. Absolutely. You are certainly having a moment. You have a new book coming out on January 9th. That's the day after we're recording this. The book is called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And the timing is certainly interesting. It's as if God said to you, you want something to mend? I'm going to give you something to mend. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I mean, sadly, there was a lot to mend long before October 7th. And I actually really wrote the book in another world. And as we, after October 7th, I was really concerned about if the book would hold up, honestly, in in the new world that we all find ourselves in. Um, and I actually stepped into the recording booth in November to, to record the, uh, the audio version of the book. And I was so moved and so grateful to see that actually the words seem more resonant now than they were for the world that I wrote them in. And I say that both as a Jew in a post-October 7th reality and also now as a mourner. My father died um, just before Rosh Hashanah. And so much of the book is about the way that we show up for and support one another in times of greatest pain. And so I really wrote the book as a as a pastor, someone coming from the direction of the caregiver and the supporter, um, both as an individual and as a rabbi, but also as an American Jew who frankly came from a position of relative privilege and spent the last 30 years really trying to think about and operationalize how we could be the best allies that we could toward impacted and vulnerable communities so that we could responsibly Uh, work toward a just and loving society. And now really for the first time in a long time, many American Jews are feeling that, you know, we're not just in a position where we can offer love and support, but we need the love and support. We're a community that really feels quite vulnerable ourselves right now. Right. Well, that's where I want to start. You and I dare say many Haaretz readers and listeners and journalists We're standing in a painful and uh, what Ezra Klein called interviewing you in what I would say is the Jewiest New York Times podcast ever. (laughs) (laughs) And that says a lot considering it's the New York Times. But he called it an almost exquisitely uncomfortable space. Now, 
you've been an outspoken, passionate advocate for Palestinian rights. You've been extremely critical of the Netanyahu government and yet profoundly connected to the state of Israel, if I may use the Z word, a Zionist. I've noticed in your post-October 7th sermons, which have gone viral, have been quoted widely in the press, you haven't made big distinctions between Israelis and diaspora Jews. You have a close identification with Israel, with the Jewish state, with Israelis. Do you feel uncomfortable standing in that space these days, especially as you make the rounds of the American media promoting your book? Well, look, life is uncomfortable. I mean, this is the space that I stand in, so I'm not going. I'm not going to downplay that in any way. I we had a gathering together at Icar. Um, you know, of course, it, it, we learned about what was happening on October seventh um, through through whispers and shouts um, that morning. It was Shabbat morning um, here. And I actually went out for a short run before going to Shul and a neighbor stopped me and said, what are you doing? There's war in Israel. And um, and I started hearing people talk about it. M many of our in our community were offline and like I was. And so we were kind of hearing about it secondhand. And then I had to sort of thrust into this moment where I have to stand up in front of the whole community an hour later and share with people the horrors of what was unfolding while not really knowing anything about what was unfolding because I couldn't even you know, access my, my phone or my family there. Um, and, and, you know, we walked through the next two days in this kind of zombie-like state, like everyone did. And then we decided to do a little gathering, um, just a kind of vigil um, for people to come together and just be in grief together um, after, after Yantif ended. And remember in America, Yantif went until Sunday night. And so we were really sort of in a different kind of headspace for, for quite a bit of time. Um, so we planned this little gathering for Monday night. And at the last minute, you know, we put out an announcement and told people if they wanted to come just be in sorrow together, they could come join us. And I thought we should put up a board that says, I am holding in my heart, dot, 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 and give people markers and let them share if they have family or friends who are there who've been impacted. And I thought, first of all, maybe 20, 30 people would show up and maybe two or three people would write the names of loved ones if they had family who were there. And hundreds of people came and the board filled with names of not only my family in Ranana, my family in Tel Aviv, my loved one in, you know, in Jerusalem, but also my family in Kibbutz Be'eri and my cousin who, whose entire family was taken hostage and my, my um, brother-in-law who's in Gaza. And all of a sudden I realized looking at this board and looking at this crowd that as much as we've spent the last 20 years talking about this massive rift between Israeli Jews and American Jews, we are so deeply and profoundly connected to one another. We're family. And so, it, and it was, it was kind of a, it, it was a powerful awakening moment for me. Um, and, and we're obviously experiencing this and feeling this very differently and all of those reports that we've done for all of those years about how 75% of Israeli Jews supported the Trump administration, 75% of American Jews detested the Trump administration, all those things are still true, but really we are family. And so we have been walking through this, holding that, that complex identity um, and both witnessing 
the unfolding of what's happening to our family in in Israel, and also at the same time dealing with a very new reality for American Jews here, um, all at the same time. So talking about that changing reality of American Jews, I wouldn't say the sermons I listened to were mea culpas exactly, but you seem to question some of what you'd seen and been through in the past years, again, as a progressive Jewish activist committed to human rights, committed to uh, rights for women and minorities in the United States. Just to cite a few things you said in your sermons, you observed that the reaction of longtime allies to the October 7th atrocities in which they expressed, quote, proud support for Hamas, the fact that Hamas became a hero of the left and people you had allied with couldn't work up a tear of sympathy for murdered Israelis was somewhat astonishing to you. You pointed to those who celebrated the attacks and said, you don't take to the streets to celebrate unless there is deep latent hate for the victims of those atrocities and openly considered the possibility that you had been, quote, too forgiving to those with latent anti-Semitism. When you look at your allyship with groups, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, do you now feel like you were too forgiving, like you ignored red flags or had a blind spot when it came to their anti-Semitism? I I wouldn't describe it as a blind spot, but I do. I I really put a lot of faith for many years when I saw hints of anti-Semitism. I put a tremendous amount of faith in the idea that the only way that we change the perception of the Jew in the world is by being Jews in the world in those difficult spaces and by showing the world exactly who we are. So if people hold perceptions that, you know, that Jews are people who wield our money as a, as a blunt force object, then be in the space and show a different perception of who we are. And I, I had a pretty high tolerance, even though I was always, I was always upset. I mean, my face would burn up. I would, you know, I would go back to the to the room after at these conferences after these difficult conversations and, you know, and journal a lot and call my husband and call my closest, you know, allies and friends and say, you can't believe what just happened. But I could stay in the room when I would hear people say things that I knew were indications of a, of a much deeper seated problem um, in their perception of Jews. And and I do I do think that after October 7th happened, and not just what happened on October 7th, but really the aftermath in terms of the response from many of those people on the left who consider themselves real justice warriors. I mean, people who've dedicated their lives to building an anti-racist society, but who now it's clear don't see anti-Semitism as a form of racism or don't see Jews in that utopian anti-racist society that you know that that they that they and we have been dreaming about together. I, I now see that in many ways, for some of those allies, they can fathom a multiracial democracy that does not make space for me and my family, even though the whole vision of a multiracial democracy depends on us making space for everyone. And that's a very painful awareness. I don't regret that I stayed in the room. I ultimately, as I discuss in the book, believe that the only way that will make change ultimately is staying in the room. But I, I do believe that I probably downplayed the crisis of what was on, of what was beginning to build up. And I, I remembered the other day, 
um, that after the Tree of Life massacre happened, when there was such an incredible show of support for our Jewish community here in the United States, when we really had friends and allies from across the spectrum, um, from uh, you know a, a massive multi-faith mobilization, I do remember quietly whispering to my husband, you know, I have a sense that if this same set of Jews had been massacred in Israel, that all of these people would not be showing up, you know, and, and if the, and if the shooter had not been a white supremacist, but had been someone screaming free Palestine, that all of these friends and allies probably wouldn't be showing up. I remember, no, I had the awareness of that even back then. But I guess I, you know, what I, what I realize now is that there was a crisis brewing that I continually believed we could avert, that it wouldn't actually rise to the level of the crisis that we're seeing now, where people actually are denying what we know happened on October 7th, telling, telling one another not to read the New York Times reports about rape and sexual assault on October 7th, because it's just war propaganda. Whereas people who believe in justice and who want to fight for the realization of a just and loving society have to take the truth seriously and have to understand that there's no way that rape and sexual assault, that murder and abduction and these kind of atrocities can be a tool of liberation. And we're not seeing that in these in these movement spaces in a widespread way. And that's absolutely devastating. A really powerful line in one of your sermons, I thought, was we cannot build a just society while denigrating the humanity of a group of people. And we need to speak out even if the people we speak of are us. Do you feel that even in the current environment of some unmistakable anti-Semitism on the left that progressive Jews still feel uncomfortable speaking up about it and calling it out the way we do freely when it comes to the right-wing Charlottesville-style anti-Semitism? Yeah, I think it's very hard for many diaspora Jews to speak out about this. And part of the reason why, Allison, is because there is because of the way that I'm going to use this word very carefully, but because of the way that anti-Semitism really has been weaponized in um, in America. And, you know, very often the people who are speaking out most loudly against anti-Semitism are honestly not doing it because they're most worried about protecting Jews from anti-Semites. They're doing it because they're using anti-Semitism as a weapon to wield against wokeism, against DEI, against, you know, critical race theory, we see this happening. We see that there's a whole mechanism that's been built to, to in the name of anti-Semitism to shut down voices, really critical voices that are calling for the kinds of changes, structural changes that need to be made in order for America to be a just society. They are not driven by concern about my daughter's safety on campus. And, and in fact, what that ends up doing is it makes a lot of Jews who are aware of that dynamic feel very uncomfortable because we don't want to be cast in this by the same die as those voices. So it, there are a lot of uncomfortable dynamics at play here. And what I think we have to do is be honest and be vigilant about anti-Semitism as it is emerging, while also distinguishing between the real fight to keep Jews safe, to be vigilant to anti-Semitism, to fight anti-Semitism, 
And this form of, you know, anti-anti-Semitism that actually is quite dangerous, I think, for Jews and for democracy. Yeah, you've spoken about what your daughter is experiencing on campus, about the professors who praised Hamas after October 7th. And you said what Trump gave to the white nationalists, these professors are giving to the anti-Semites. What are your thoughts on the congressional hearings, the subsequent resignation of the UPenn and Harvard presidents, the withdrawal of funding by so many significant Jewish donors? I ask because I know that your formative origin stories as a a human rights-oriented rabbi took place to a great degree on campus. And in general, sort of American Jewry and liberal American Jewry sees these elite institutions kind of as their gateway into the, uh, the American mainstream. I don't think any of us could have predicted that these college campuses would have erupted the way that they did over the course of the last few months. I say it both as a as a person who is an an, an alum of a university that now students in that university are experiencing a kind of anti-Semitic, really vocal and volatile anti-Semitism that is nothing like what I experienced as a student there, but also as a parent of a student who's on one of these campuses that's really at the epicenter of a lot of what we see emerging. And I mean, literally on October 8th, there were protests where students were celebrating Hamas's actions. And then a letter written on my daughter's college campus that was signed by 150 or more professors in the immediate aftermath of October 7th that use the language of Hamas's legitimate military action. And I these are professors who are all in liberal arts professors. I mean, history, um, li- literature, sociology, and they that means that they are labeling actions like what we now know to be the case, what the New York Times now has reported and many other news outlets as well, but extremely well documented now, cases of extreme atrocities and barbarity. And they're calling that legitimate military action. And so what we have now is just a, a world that that our students are being forced to confront that's different from anything that their parents ever had to confront on these campuses and it's it's devastating and i was horrified like like so many people by these congressional hearings and watching the, the presidents who are all really brilliant um scholars at a loss of words just unable to say that of course calling for the genocide of, of Jews, like calling for the genocide of any population, is not permissible on our campus. And we will do everything in our power to protect our students from this kind of violent rhetoric. They completely fail the most basic moral test. And the president of Harvard apologized immediately after that happened and said that she was caught in the moment by a prosecutorial approach that left her speechless. She was deeply embarrassed by it, deeply regretted it, wanted to learn, wanted to do a better job, and then was essentially forced to resign in what I think is a harbinger of a very dangerous future for us. And as upset as I was hearing those hearings, I did not feel heartened by her resignation. And I actually feel like that makes my daughter less safe, not more safe. 
And there's a kind of absolutism that we see happening right now that, again, I think is ultimately not in the service of combating anti-Semitism, but is instead in the service of combating what people call wokeism, which I believe is actually very dangerous to, for our, not only for, toward Jews, but for our democracy. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm really concerned. I think that the universities, most, many of our great universities failed at the very outset to address this in a way that would have kept my kids safe and would have kept all of our children safe. And in the moral vacuum that was created on October 7th, 8th, and 9th, when they failed to unequivocally condemn gross atrocities, they created a space that was immediately filled by accusations and allegations that Israel was committing genocide, et cetera, et cetera. So when the strong, morally centered voices failed to offer words of comfort and consolation to Jewish students and to Israeli students in the immediate aftermath of those atrocities, what they did was create the space for much, very extreme voices to fill the public square, which is what they've been doing every day since. So I look to, as many people have, I look to Dartmouth, I look to Vassar. There are a few schools that handled this really well. And I think it's going to be really difficult for the schools that did not handle it well to play catch up now, because once you allow really extreme voices into the public space, um, and vo those voices are then validated by the fact that they're there day after day after day, and then many professors also join those calls, it's really hard to pull it back. But old my book is actually about how we can find our way to one another, how we can reclaim our own humanity and each other's. And I believe that it is possible to do so even in these most volatile spaces. And the way that they're going to have to do it is by actively leading and bringing voice, small, very small groups, like three or four or five people together to listen to one another and to ask questions of one another and to engage one another's humanity. That's the only way out of this. You can't build a counter protest against the protest that's going to convince each other that the other one has a right to exist in the world. That doesn't work. And I'm ne I've never really been a fan of counter protests. I think all they do is create more fuel for hatred because then you have to counter the counter protesters. The only way through this is to build relationships of understanding. And in order to do that, our university presidents have to see their work as, as people who are creating cultures of curiosity on their campuses, of intellectual curiosity and of human curiosity, where people are asking, tell me your story. What does this look like from your vantage point? Because I'm inclined to see it very differently than you do. I want to understand what you see from where you stand. And it's not too late. They can't actually do that. I was going to say, you know, from where we sit right now, it sounds very utopian and I, you know, uh, fingers crossed. For now, though, I mean, I've seen many Jews, progressive and, and liberal Jews, to a certain extent, retreat into a more tribal identity. We've had that tension and you've spoken about it extensively in the past between those dual um, impulses as Jews, seeing ourselves as a tribe and seeing ourselves in more universalist and, and humanist terms. 
So many Jews in Israel and around the world are rethinking that dynamic and that balance in the wake of October 7th and the world's reaction to October 7th. People are returning, as you've said in your sermons, in sorrow and solidarity to the Jewish community, to the tribe, needing that embrace, needing that feeling of being together. What do you say to those more on the right wing side of things who say, look, I told you so, um, that October 7th and its aftermath is a reason to abandon our universalist impulses and, and retreat back into the comfort of the tribe? Do you feel that tension these days? Well, I will say, I, I mean, th throughout the book, I use the metaphor of um, morning rituals as a way of helping us understand um, really the, the needs of the human heart in times of great upheaval. And I've been thinking a lot about morning rituals post October 7th, because we are in an extended period of three plus months of Avelut, of mourning. And in some ways, it's not even yet Avelut. It's actually a period of Aninut, which is that terrible period before the mourning starts. It's because it's the period in between death and burial. And I think as long as these uh, captives are still held hostage, and we don't even know if they're alive or dead, or if we're going to see them home and when we will, we are in this period of sort of suspended in midair. And when you're in Aninut, when you're in this period you, before burial, you can't, you're, you're, you're released from all obligations to anyone else. You are not bound by, by, by the, the mitzvot to, by any of the obligations to pray, to say, to say blessings after you eat. We are uh, focused entirely on getting our loved one buried with dignity. Now, of course, we hope that mo many of our loved ones who are there will not be buried with dignity, but will come home with dignity. But we don't know yet the outcome. And even aside from the people who are still held captive, we're in this extended period of collective mourning right now. And when you're in Avel, when you're a mourner, your whole worldview shifts. And for a very intense period of time in our tradition, seven days, Shiva, but it, but it is extended in this case for a very intense period of time. All of your needs are taken care of by your community. You are fed. You are, you're, you're cared for in every way. You're not showering. You're not shaving. You're, you're sitting deeply in your grief and you're surrounded by the people who you love and trust most in the world. The reason I'm saying this is because I believe that it is not only natural, but it makes complete sense that in this period of extended mourning that we're feeling right now, that we want to be surrounded by people we know, love, and care for us. We don't want to have to explain our tears. We don't want to have to explain our sorrow. We just need to be fed by one another and to feed one another. And that makes total sense. You don't, moments of deep grief are not moments for big outreach where we, where we're like, how can I be a bridge builder right now? But the fact is that at some point Shiva ends and what we do when Shiva ends, when that period of most intense mourning ends is we get up from the house of mourning and we walk around the block. And it's such an interesting reintroduction into the world because when when you've been deep in your own grief, which I was just in when my father died in, at the end of August, 
your world gets really small and you see the faces that you see and you might forget that there's a whole other world out there of other people, some of whom are very much alive right now and aren't even thinking about your father and your grief and your loss and your family dynamic, but they're thinking about their own family dynamic and their own pain and their own joy. And someone just got married and someone else just found out that they're pregnant after struggling with infertility for, for, you know, for eight years. And someone else, you know, isn't thinking about any of that, but is wondering if they should leave their crappy job or not. There's a whole world of human experience outside of your Shiva house. I don't know how long our Jewish people will be in Shiva from October 7th. I know we're still there. I know that some of us are re really have lost immediate family members and loved ones. Some of us still have family members and loved ones who are still in Gaza. So it's going to take a different amount of time for different people here. Some of us are already ready to take a walk around the block and to start to think about this bigger world that we live in and how we can begin to rebuild connection. So I don't think about tribalism and universalism as um, forces that are in conflict with one another, but maybe more um, that they're on a different timeline, that when we're in our time of greatest sorrow and pain, we revert to our most tribal state where we really need to only be cared for by the people who are closest to us and who we fully trust and love. And we are most invested in those relationships. But as we can expand our hearts and our circle of care and concern, as we start to step out of Shiva, we, we return to more universalist understanding. We don't get rid of our tribal attachments, but we're able to expand our scope of vision to a bigger field where we see that, yeah, there's still a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and sorrow that's happening in the world outside of my family. And I care about that too. And I'm invested in that too, because ultimately I don't want to live in a world where Jews are safe and free and able to live in dignity. I want to live in a world where all people are safe and free and able to live in dignity. And I, as a Jew, have to help build that world. So the controversial Yom Kippur sermon that you gave before October 7th, declaring that the Netanyahu government and its maximalist agenda were the natural outcomes of a growing extremism in Israeli society manifesting most egregiously in the half century of occupation, a very strongly worded sermon that you gave, you would give it again after October 7th? I believe everything that I said on Yom Kippur, I would give it differently now because I have to be both uh, I believe that clergy members are called, that rabbis are called to be both pastor and prophet. In some ways, we have to, as we say, you know, this is a phrase that comes from journalism initially, but but um, has been claimed by faith leaders. We have to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And October 7th, my primary responsibility, I believed, was to afflict the comfortable and post-October 7th, my primary responsibility is to comfort the afflicted. And so I would give the same sermon, but I would give it differently. I mean, we have to pastor to our community with incredible love right now, because as I told you, I mean, we, two of my board members, coincidentally, two of my board members have family that were taken captive. Um, in, in, and, and, you know, thank God, one of my, one of my board members, uh, niece was, 
Smadar, Smadar and Roe were both murdered. And of course, their daughter, Abigail, Abigail was taken into captivity. And thank God, um, you know, was was returned now with her family. She's reunited with her two siblings who survived. I mean, we had the fact that we are that that close to this, uh, you know, is my constant reminder that my job now is different than it was on Yom Kippur because we are in great sorrow and we're in great fear and great concern about the future. And I still, I will stand by every word that I said. The immediate crisis though, is that Israelis and Palestinians are both so engrossed, encircled by their own pain and grief right now, that uh, as you say in your sermon, step closer when another people is suffering. That's the really hard part right now is to find um, the bandwidth, the ability to see the humanity in the other side. I recently on this podcast interviewed um, our Haaretz reporter, Shireen Falah Saab. She's a Druze Israeli who covers what happens in Gaza. And she was talking about how she's lost friends and loved ones in Gaza. She's lost friends and loved ones um, on October 7th um, and knows people who are fighting in Gaza now. So many people after that podcast remarked to me afterwards how rare it felt to hear someone who was really able to see the humanity on both sides of this conflict. Conflict. And it's imperative that we do. And I, I want to share that I mean, we have a beautiful multi-faith coalition in Los Angeles that we've invested decades to, in building. And we really show up for each other. I mean, anytime there's a threat of arson at a mosque, you've got a team of Jews, Christians, and Muslims showing up at that mosque and and saying, you know, we stand against this hatred. When there's an anti-Semitic attack, you've got Jews, Christians, and Muslims standing together. And after October 7th, there was this weird, eerie silence um, among many of the people who are part of that coalition. And I was particularly hurt by it and aware of it because I didn't hear from some of my Palestinian friends and some of my Muslim non-Palestinian friends. And a couple of days passed and I was like in agony as we all were, but I was particularly noticing the silence. And at some point I reached out to one of my Palestinian Muslim friends in this, you know, small space that we share together. And he told me that that just that, that the day before he had lost two um, family members in Gaza from the aerial bombardment. And I thought, here I am like holding my own broken heart because I'm deep in the sorrow of October 7th. And he is too. And I realized like, I, and I mean, we, ha we, he he's just a just a person in LA who's you know who's just like I am trying to build a better Los Angeles and a better America and dreaming of a better world and he lost family members a couple of days after October 7th and a couple days passed and one of our colleagues and friends in this group lost Allison 67 members of her family died in in Gaza in one day it's unthinkable, unimaginable loss. And so how can I not as a human being connect to that reality? And I understand that given that, you know, I have the privilege of living in, you know, Los Angeles and not living in Renana, um, like my family, I have the privilege of my kids are, you know, are, are in, in, in school in, in LA and in college, they're not, uh, you know, preparing to, um, for their service. I understand that there's a privilege that comes with being one step removed. I'm using that privilege to extend my heart as much as I can right now and actually see that the people who are dying there are people too. 
and and as horrified and, and and as outraged as I am about what has happened to our Jewish family, when I read reports about Palestinian mothers who have to write their children's names on their legs in case they are blown up by a bombardment or in case they get shot so that they can be identified as a mother and as a human being and as a rabbi and as a Jew. I'm completely devastated by that. And so, you know, I think each of us in our own way has to, has to find when we're ready to step out of our Shiva and actually see that there is a world of human suffering that is happening just over the border but it is happening, whether we're able to acknowledge it or not. And I think at some point, our own humanity is on the line. And, and I will just say, we Jews who expect the world to see our pain have a particular responsibility to see and understand Palestinian human suffering. And I know that that's really hard for our Jewish family to hear but how can we expect people to see and understand us and empathize with us when we fail to empathize with and hold compassion for the human beings who are worried for their own survival on the other side of this border? And I'm going to go even one step further and say something that I, I imagine will upset people. But let me just say, when I speak with and listen to Palestinians talk about their experience in the world, about their sense that the world has abandoned them and does not care if they live or die, about their yearning for home, about their desire for self-determination. When I hear them speak, I always think there is one people in the world that is particularly well-suited to understand the pain that they are describing because we experience that too. Because throughout history, we can identify with that yearning for home, that fear of abandonment by the world, that sense that nobody cares if we live or die. That's the Jewish people. And so I believe that we are actually very well suited to see the humanity in the Palestinian people and the people who are suffering greatly. And in order to do that, we do not then have to forego our own humanity. But in fact, we in, in many ways, we embrace our own humanity by embracing the suffering of the people whose lives are very much intertwined with ours. And I, I do believe that um, that the folks at Omdim Biachat at Standing Together, that the people at Bereaved Families Forum, that, um, that, that the people who are really on the front lines, the Israeli Jews and Palestinians who are working on this, when they say the only future is a shared future, that they're right. There ultimately can be no Jewish future, no Jewish liberation that is not entwined with Palestinian liberation, with a society that is just and fair for Palestinians and a society that is just and fair for Jews. And so in order for us to get to a place where we can actually envision and then build that future, we have to start by seeing one another's humanity. Rabbi Sharon Brous, your book, The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and the World. I think it's fair to say we can use all the wisdom we can get right now. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Allison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Rabbi Sharon Brous, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. 
I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.